Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today we have Taylor Grace from the University of Oklahoma. Taylor, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing well for a Monday morning. How are things down in Oklahoma? Uh, a little chilly, actually. <laughs> Define a little chilly. Well, I'd say like, well, this morning it was like mid 40s or so. Um, but during the day, it's up to upper 60s. But we're supposed to warm up again here later this week. So just oh, short lived. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are a little bit warmer than us. I think we got down to the mid 30s this morning. Um, a little bit of frost. It's, that's not unusual for this time of year. It's mid-October after all. Um, so where, where are you actually from and what's your kind of your story? Yeah, so I'm originally from South Central Pennsylvania, so Hershey, PA specifically. Um, grew up there most of my life since I was about five. And um, kind of what really got me into weather was it's a little bit different than a lot of other meteorology students or people who get into the field. Usually there's one specific event or one specific story that really kickstart their interest. But for me, it was just I kind of stumbled upon the Weather Channel. And honestly, I watched it like every day um, and probably had a little bit of an addiction to it. Um, and after kind of doing that from middle school on, um, you know, in high school, you start to think about what you want to do for a living, what kind of interests you. And I always knew that I was stronger in kind of the math and science fields, but I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. Um, and really one day my mom kind of sat me down and kind of talked to me about things. And she was like, you watch the weather all the time. She's like, you know, you can do that for a living. And I had no idea because kind of in our school system, we never had a weather kind of course um, within our science classes. So I'm um, really what I knew was specifically on TV. So um, I started to kind of dive into what that would look like and um, really what schools I could go to. And then from there, it just really um, was a perfect fit in my opinion. So that's kind of, it's a little bit unusual, but that's kind of how it all started. No, that's interesting. I mean, I could point to a couple of seminal events that maybe really got me interested in the weather when I was a kid. Uh, but like you, I, I was an avid watcher of the Weather Channel. So I was a complete nerd in elementary school. Like I watched um, uh, the Weather Channel and I watched sports and that was basically it. Um, I kind of mm -hmm. stopped watching Weather Channel as I got into college. Is They kind of did less traditional weather and I kind of just, you know, as, as you may probably remember from your undergrad, under, undergraduate meteorology days, there's not a lot of free time. Um, but I would give the Weather Channel significant credit for want getting me into the field of weather um do you remember your favorite broadcaster did you have a favorite broadcaster or do you just kind of just 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 an avid view, viewer in general um i don't know i wouldn't say i really had a favorite broadcaster that really stuck out um i just know specifically like our channel eight kind of station in south central pa was kind of the one that we usually watched so i kind of grew up just watching those broadcasters um but they're really isn't one that kind of sticks out to me personally and don't have a really great memory either so <laughs> um, it's been a couple of years since I've <laughs> kind of sat down and actually watched um, kind of weather broadcasts to be honest with you <laughs> sure no that makes sense you probably had not a lot of free time uh, so you did your undergraduate at uh, University of North Carolina Charlotte is that correct yep UNC 
DC. Yeah. It was a smaller kind of department and program, but I really love that because it gave me the opportunity to really network and learn from, you know, the few faculty that were there and their expertise. And I was able to really find my niche and what I really wanted to do, whether that was, you know, research, which is what I'm in now, or kind of go the route of potential private sector um, or broadcasting. So kind of having the smaller classroom um, really helped me figure out what avenue I think early on that I wanted to pursue within outside of kind of my undergrad program. Sure. Do you think having that smaller program helped you maybe find your niche a little bit better than it would have been if you had been in a really big program or maybe you wouldn't have gotten as much individualized attention? Yeah, for sure. I think specifically with research, um, it can be a bit more difficult when you're in a class size of, you know, greater than 20, 25, because um, especially faculty, you know, usually only have one um, opportunity to kind of do research as an undergrad, specifically with them. Um, and there's, you know, probably limited availability throughout all the faculty within, you know, a larger university. So having kind of that smaller class size, I was able to you know, showcase a little bit of my skills and maybe try and stand out a little bit more um, and express interest a bit more um, easily than comparative to having to, you know, quote unquote, compete with 20, 25 students. Uh, my class size was, I think I walked technically at graduation with eight, but uh, my class size ranged between about 12 to 15. So they're really, really small class sizes. Sure. And that, that's more comparable to the size of graduating classes at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and their meteorology program. They tend to, they might be a little bit bigger than that, but they're, you know, it's a much smaller program than uh, Oklahoma. But Oklahoma is what I, they're probably one of the bigger programs, them and Penn State, Texas A&M. I think those are probably still some of the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, what specifically did you do to try to make yourself stand out more? Were you really into uh, programming or really into writing or what, what do you think, how do you, what did you do specifically that really helped carve your research path when you were an, under, an undergrad? Yeah, I mean, kind of freshman year, you always have the intro level classes. So you're still kind of learning things. And then transitioning into sophomore year, you start to really dive into computer programming and kind of applying a lot of you know meteorological research or atmospheric science research to computer programming. And so it's a little old fashioned. I learned Fortran um, in undergrad. <laughs> So, <laughs> so did I. Yeah. So um, I, you know, found it semi, you know, easy for me to pick up and somehow understood, even though I've before that I never programmed ever in my life. Um, I never did it growing up and um, no one in my family really does it. So I just kind of, kind of clung on to that a little bit um, and started to, you know, talk to the faculty on, this is kind of somewhere I seem to excel a bit um, and how it might be able to be utilized within my field. And so it kind of just started to open up some opportunities. I started out just kind of collecting data and processing data um, for a master's student my sophomore year. Um, and I kind of did that most of my sophomore year. And then um, transitioning into junior year, I did a summer internship kind of program that the university puts on where you can get a faculty member to almost be your mentor and you stem up basically a whole independent research project on your own. And then you present a poster and you write a paper at the end. Um, and you just do several development 
courses throughout the summer. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. And though, and since then I kind of, um, my senior year really wanted to focus on, you know, diving more into research and getting more into that, um, experience. And so I worked closely with, um, one of the faculty members there at UNCC, um, kind of on my own independent study, um, to kind of get me ready for, you know, potential grad programs and what grad college would be like. Yeah. So safe to say by the time you started your senior year that you knew you wanted to go to graduate school. Oh, absolutely. I'd say probably by time, probably by junior year, I knew that this was kind of the route that I was going to take. I wasn't sure if I was going to do just a master's or if I was going to continue on for a PhD. That was still kind of up in the air. But I knew that grad school was kind of the direction that I was heading for sure. Um, I kind of checked broadcasting off the list quite early on, personally. Yeah, I did the same thing. Um, although I kind of come full circle now, I'm actually doing some broadcasting with this, you know, this podcast, which has been a ton of fun. I get to talk to cool people like yourself. Um, but so the internship you did between your junior and senior year, though, I mean that that you think cement the that you knew you wanted to do research uh, going forward. Yeah, because that kind of internship was, you know, starting a project from start to finish. Sure. Um, whereas collecting the data, that's only part of the picture. So kind of being able to do, you know, all of the steps and then be able to present my work um, and see how many people were interested in it, not only kind of other faculty members from different departments, but other students as well, um, really kind of almost gave a little bit of joy um, to me of kind of like, okay, like this is actually a lot of fun. Like I actually enjoy, you know, doing this research and doing the computer programming and and all the visualizations and then Mm -hmm. presenting it kind of in final form so definitely that internship was kind of what solidified to me that research was going to probably be my future yeah that's why i'm such a big proponent of internships for undergraduate students is i think it really helps give them i mean a it's a it's a great resume builder but i think too i mean i think it helps you define a path forward so an internship like that could tell you Pretty quickly, if you really, really want to do research or don't want to do research, because if you don't like research internship, then you probably shouldn't go to grad school, or at least not go to grad school, anything that's really heavily research focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you did that, you finished school. So how did you, what drove you or what brought you to the University of Oklahoma? Yeah, so I applied to several schools kind of coming out of undergrad. Um I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to research, to be honest. So a lot of my undergrad research was more mesoscale um, research. So I did a lot of convective work um, and a little bit of radar work as well. So I wasn't, it wasn't terrible. I just don't think that that's really where I wanted to focus, um, especially if I was going to put in two plus years of kind of my time towards research. So I kind of, you know, applied to a lot the big gamuts um, of schools. So um, I applied to like Penn State and Texas A&M, OU obviously, and kind of just cautioned to the wind a bit and just kind of toured a lot of them and talked to a lot of the faculty. And um, I really didn't make my decision until last minute of where I wanted to go, obviously, because it is a bit serious. I mean, like I said, you're going to spend two Mm -hmm. or more years there and kind of these couple of years really shape a bit of your early career as a scientist. So um, I wanted to make sure that I found kind of a department that fit what I was looking for 
and found really an advisor and mentor that would work with kind of my advising style just because I'm a very independent worker. Um, I prefer to kind of do my own thing. And then if I have questions to kind of be able to ask and have that availability, but um, I'm not kind of a student or a scientist that needs regulatory meetings um, to kind of get sure. things done. So I you needed need more of an advisor. Yeah, I needed more of an advisor who would take that kind of hands-off approach. Um, and so meeting with Dr. Jeff Becerra, it was just, that's kind of what I got from him is he was going to be there whenever I needed questions, but kind of would let me take the reins on a lot of the ideas and a lot of the um, kind of outputs from from my research. Sure. And that's ideal. What you ideally what you want is an advisor that really motivates you, but that lets you have ownership of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, it needs to feel like, at least from, from my perspective, graduate students need to feel like what they're doing is their own unique work that they have ownership of it. Uh, they're motivated by it. And, you know, they want to build on that for the rest of your career uh, or at least use that as, as a building block uh, for the rest of your career. Um, so I mean, clearly it seems like you, you found that cause you obviously have, you know, finished a master's and now we're in a PhD program. Uh, you got about what, uh, roughly a year left or a little bit less, hopefully less than a year for you, for your sake. Yeah, hopefully that's, that's the plan to wrap up kind of summer of 2024. So um, excellent. that's the goal. <laughs> yeah. So you've really kind of, um, I don't know if I would say your niche, but certainly what you've really been working on the last couple of years is uh, heat waves, right? Correct. Yep. So I've dabbled into looking at kind of definitions of heat waves and then um, kind of through that, you know, explored, you know, a section of heat waves that hasn't really been talked about before, um, which is more of the winter season um, warm snap events. So um, I've kind of been dabbling into that a bit more. So discussing kind of how these heat wave definitions could be expanded to an all season encompassed um, form and kind of looking at the similarities and differences between the characteristics and drivers between, you know, summer season heat wave events and these wintertime warm spells. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think traditionally when we think about heat waves, we think about heat waves in the summer uh, that are, you know, have very lethal heat or lethal heat for a real particular region. I hadn't really thought as much about the winter thermal shocks, but they probably can be a bit of an issue. Uh, so what what's what have you been finding in terms of some of your research with these uh, thermal shocks? Yeah, so I'm specifically kind of working on right now a case study first. So um, obviously, I think if you know you have some expertise or some knowledge about heat waves, you know stationary or blocking highs are really what are you know a dominant term and and feature that are found during these heat wave events. Um, so what I've actually found is that it may not only specifically be that during these winter warm spells, um, they may be present, but it's not specifically over the region that's being impacted. Um, so it's more of kind of this, um, you know, displacement and um, kind of change in the Rossby wave pattern due to a blocking high, you know, more so on the from the West region um, from where it's impacted. And then, coupled with a lot of kind of land surface um, and land atmospheric interactions as well. Sure. So the, if I'm reading you right in the summer, the heat waves tend to be very strongly correlated with having a strong middle of high pressure. 
And, you know, in this region of the country, we certainly saw that a couple of times. I mean, you guys were definitely under the influence of a strong ridge at various points of the summer. Uh, we kind of got, we were on the northern periphery a few times uh, in July. And then in August, we had a record 500 millibar height level of like 602 decameters at, at uh, the Omaha office, I think like on August 20th. And yeah, we just had an insane amount of heat and humidity. I think we had temperatures, the upper nineties, about a hundred degrees and dew points that were uh, for a couple of days were hitting the low eighties in the afternoon and early evening. So the heat index values were, you know, off the charts and it was just unbearable to be outside. Uh, and you did see quite, you know, quite a bit of, um, you know, increase in a little bit of immortality, but just a lot of people that were entering the hospital for heat stroke or heat related illnesses. Um, so, I mean, the meteorology seems to be pretty clear for those type of heat waves, but I would imagine there's really not been a lot of research done on the more uh, cold season heat waves. Is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, a lot of the work that's kind of previously done been done is mostly looking at um, the differences between cold snaps in these maybe warm spells, um, but not specifically like what's going on during the warm spell periods. And... I think really having this comparison of, you know, apples to apples in the sense of summer season heat waves in the wintertime um, kind of warm spells is really the connection that is missing um, a bit. And obviously during, you know, the winter season, if you're having, you know, extremely high temperatures, human health may not be, you know, a big factor or a big impact. But when you take into consideration like water resources, um, obviously, specifically in, in Oklahoma here during the fall and winter season is the most important time for replenishment of soil moisture. So if you're having, you know, an increase in these warm spells during that replenishment period, um, it doesn't set up great conditions for kind of the spring season um, for agriculture and growing season. So a lot of these impacts are they can be you know, current during that time, but then also can have cascading impacts further down the line, if you're seeing, you know, heightened extreme temperatures during the winter season, um, kind of on the higher end. Sure. Is the Southern Plains sort of a hot spot for these winter uh, heat waves or thermal shocks? Yeah. So I haven't specifically looked into kind of differences in the frequency of these events per region um, across the United States, but um, kind of looking from 1950 through 2022, uh, in the Southern Great Plains, there is a significant increase, um, specifically from kind of like the mid-1980s onward, um, a very sharp increase in the frequency of these winter warm spells. Um, and like, like I said, I'm kind of focusing on a, a case study at the moment of December of 2021. Um, I mean, temperature anomalies were reaching 12 degrees Celsius or greater during that time. So um, I know specifically here, kind of in OKC, they saw around 80 degrees, above 80 degrees on Christmas. And that's kind of unheard of during, obviously, December. Sure. Yeah, now I think about it, December 2021, we had one day, I think it was like December 14th or 15th, we got to like 74 degrees and with a dew point of around 60. Um, we just had this insane, you know, warm air mass with a you know good fetch from the Gulf. And we actually had a duration move through eastern Nebraska into Iowa in December. That was the only tornado watch we had the entire calendar year 2021 in our area was in December. 
Um, now, granted, that was a little bit shorter lived. I think it, before that it was warm, but not anywhere close to that warm. And then after that, I think we were back down to the 30s for highs like two days later. So it was like a little more typical. But um, in, terms of, in terms of the criteria for defining the heat wave, like what are some of the um, criteria temperature wise or, or others that kind of have to go into saying, yeah, this is an actual heat wave in the winter? Yeah, so heat definition is kind of a very heavily debated topic <laughs> um, within kind of the community. So there's been so many definitions. Honestly, I don't even think I've touched on all of them um, with my research, but the differences and kind of the variables that are used, some use heat index and some use specifically just temperature. Um, some use maximum, some use minimum, some use the mean temperature. Um, and then there's kind of this introduction of using the wet bulb globe temperature as well. Mm -hmm. So just the variety of variables that are used um, to even start kind of the definition of heat waves is truly not decided on either. And then, you know, you have different thresholds as well, which make it confusing. Um, you kind of have more absolute thresholds that might be used. I know specifically the National Weather Service, they use kind of a more absolute threshold um, depending upon what office they're in. But um, personally, just kind of the research that I do, because it's spanning across all seasons, using an absolute threshold, you're obviously going to miss events that could potentially be, you know, well, well above normal and fit that classification. Um, but if you kind of restrict it at, it has to be over 100 degrees, obviously you're probably not going to reach that in the winter time. If you do, that's probably a bigger problem. Um, so <laughs> right. <laughs> kind, of, kind of relying on more of these relative and percentile thresholds allow it to kind of span across the entire year, um, and to really explore what's, you know, going on atmospherically and kind of at the surface as well during kind of these more extreme events. Um, so I've resorted to really just kind of using maximum daily temperature. I think specifically for the research that I do, which is more geared towards agriculture, water resources, and, and kind of more desiccation. That's kind of more what it makes sense to apply to. Um, but when you're talking about kind of more human aspect, obviously using and incorporating kind of humidity um, and the amount of radiation that you're receiving might be more um, kind of the, the ticket to understanding those impacts. So that's something that's talked about so many times within conferences um, during kind of heat wave presentations is what definition should you use and what definition makes sense really is dependent upon what you're applying it to and kind of more of an impact standpoint, which obviously makes it a bit hard to kind of connect all of the research that's been done on heat waves as obviously different definitions are gonna pick up on different events. Sure, absolutely. And what you said about it being application-driven, sector-driven, that makes perfect sense. For human health, nighttime minimum temperatures, uh, and I, yeah, the wet bulb global temperature, I think that is because it does incorporate radi solar radiation and wind speed, you know, I I think that has probably more meaning in some ways than the heat index, just because like the heat index can be a little deceiving if you have a decent breeze and it's... um. You know, certain time of day, the sun may not be as strong as others. Um, I actually did a podcast with Becky Kern from the Omaha Weather Service office back in late August to talk about the wet bulb global temperatures. It was right after the heat wave, and it was kind of timely. And, you know, the 
the only thing about the wet ball global temperature I find just maybe a little hard to dis- understand for some people is the scale. It's not there's no unit on it, but the scale is like s- small in the sense that like in order like the 78 in on the wet ball global temperature is nice day. 82 is kind of warm. 86 is pretty uncomfortable. 92 is really, really hot. 95 is like very, very dangerous. So like that's, I think p- people see something like 86, they think, oh, that's not too bad of a day. Whereas on the wet ball global temperature, that's actually probably getting into the you know definite caution stage for, you know, what you should be doing outside. But um, the good news though, is I think there are more educational resources out there, um, you know, for people. So I think there were actually like high school football programs were using wet bulb global temperature forecast guidance to say, okay, we're going to only do practice for a short time. We're not going to have pads and yada, yada. So um, I think all that to say that, that I think there, you know, there are other metrics for heat waves that seem to be very valuable, but I think what you're doing though is really probably really critical for agriculture, but also it's like, I think putting it in the percentile perspective also uh, could help us understand like how are heat waves changing over time? Are we seeing more higher percentile events in the last say 20, 30 years with increasing climate change? Uh, and I'm assuming we we probably are, right? Yeah, I mean, um, just specifically kind of this December 2021 event, um, we were kind of, this event was in like the 90th percentile of score comparative to all the wintertime warm spells. So it was kind of in that top three um, category. And I think the one previously was kind of in the mid nineties, maybe across the Southern Great Plains. Um, but since then it's really not really happened. So um, again, kind of seeing, you know, these extreme periods do pop up um, and they, you know, are becoming more frequently, but then you do get within these really, really extreme periods. Um, and really, really extreme events within that. So not only kind of having that increase in frequency of these, you know, warm spells, but then also, you know, dabbling in a little bit of these more extreme warm spells doesn't really help the the land surface. It doesn't help agriculture. Um, Like I said, you kind of see those impacts later down the line. Sure. Um, So you talked about agriculture did you see specific impacts from the december 2021 heat wave yeah so um more specifically kind of in the winter wheat um they did note during kind of that time period through a little bit of january um winter wheat needs this you know introduction to kind of more colder temperatures so it can create Mm -hmm. kind of like that armor that it needs to survive and grow. Yeah. For its fertilization um, during, period. Right. During that, you know, during winter season. So when you introduce more of these warm spells, it's not able to do that. And so then when you get, you know, a freeze shortly after that, um, you can see a quick um kind of decrease in in the amount that they're able to harvest. So um it was noted specifically kind of within Oklahoma more specifically um, is really where a lot of the extreme temperatures happened, but um, that was definitely noted in Oklahoma to have caused a problem. Sure. And this was multiple days of temperatures probably being at least in the upper 60s to mid 70s or maybe a couple days in the low 80s. Yeah. So 
the first kind of event really only lasted about three days, but then um, the second event lasted from November 29th through December 17th. So you're spanning several weeks of above normal um, kind of temperatures. And then it was just a very short period in between, um, which kind of shows the uh, atmospheric circulations kind of move and shift just a little bit. So then, um, you know, the Southern Great Plains wasn't directly over, you know, kind of a ridge period, but um, then it quickly spawned up again, um, December 22nd through kind of January 1st. So kind of also having that first or that second event span for so long can almost create an environment to have, you know, following events occur. Um, so we see kind of some of these longer period events almost set up an increase in frequency of events shortly after. Yeah. And in terms of the temperature anomalies, like how strong were they on a regular basis? Yeah. I mean, so prior to kind of the initiation of the three events, um, they were about normal really. Um, and then you start to see a little increase closer to like two to four range degrees Celsius. Um, but then by kind of that longer event. So by kind of the end of November, we saw this great jump in um, kind of temperature anomalies. And like I said, kind of seeing 12 degrees Celsius and greater is not heard of. It's usually more specific to kind of these more well-known, you know, summer season heat wave events kind of can have temperature anomalies of that nature. Um, winter season uh, temperature anomalies usually are between probably about six to eight degrees Celsius above normal. Sure. Well, and they probably traditionally, even if you did have a day or two where you had 10 Celsius above average, it's probably not lasting for two weeks. <laughs> and right. This is basically from what you're describing here. This is basically almost an entire month where you had temperatures that were running at least four degrees Celsius above normal. And for winter wheat, it needs that nice kind of long vernalization period. So I think wheat down there is, is traditionally planted in what, October, probably is that from what yeah, I remember from I'm, my time yeah. down there. And then, mm -hmm. so you, it probably grows a little bit and then it probably normally by mid November, late November is going into, you know, it's fertilization period and it's not going, it shouldn't traditionally start really growing again until probably at least March. Um, you know, I know the late February could always be kind of a tricky time as you get some warm days and, you know, if it was too warm for a whole week, then, you just almost had to like pray that you didn't get a big cold snap in March, which is sort of inevitable. And, and especially once you get in the higher elevations of, um, you know, Western Oklahoma. Um, but yeah, like it, it would be interesting to actually talk to uh, some of the wheat breeders down that part of the country, just to see if, like what the wheat actually did that year. Did it actually even deduct it? It kind of start going to that period and then wake up. I mean, that probably had been very shocking for a plant that normally isn't experiencing those types of conditions. Um, and so if I, I'm trying to think in 2021, you all were, that wasn't a bad drought you were down there, was it? Not that I remember. Um, cause February, 2021 was the extreme cold that happened. So, um, <laughs> I don't, believe oh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe we were, um, I, I'm just living here. I feel like we're always in drought, but. Um, 
I don't think it was extreme enough to really almost set the stage for that winter season event. Sure. Yeah, but it's, but I, I do know that you guys were in drought down there for a lot of 2022. I think things got pretty bad. And you know what I'm wondering, though, is if these thermal shocks are sort of a precondition for having issues the next growing season. So, I mean, typically you just, you've talked about the uh, fall period, winter period being very important for recharge. That's kind of the case up here in the Midwest too. I mean, we, you know, we, we tend to not be able to recharge too much. So winters because our soil tend to be frozen for a good period of time. Uh, but we do need that per- period to recharge September, October, and then early you know, in the spring. Um, you know, but for you all, like, yeah, that winter time could be really, really useful. And if you have, even if you have adverse precipitation, if you're if you have these warm shocks, you're probably really depleting soil moisture at levels you normally wouldn't have, and then you know that puts yourself at a disadvantage going the next seasons if you don't have that full profile of moisture to start off setting. You know the warmer temperatures, uh, things can desiccate pretty quickly. Then you start getting these positive feedbacks, and you know what uh, we call cascading impacts for agriculture. Um, so did did you guys take a look at these at soil moisture around the state to see if you did see a big drop during that uh, December twenty twenty one thermal shock? Yeah, so I did take a look at kind of soil moisture anomalies um, kind of prior during and during the event. And I was a little bit shocked because the the kind of change in the soil moisture anomalies was not significant. Um, It was dry and it was already dry prior to kind of the start of the events, but we didn't really see too much of a depletion. Um, There was kind of one area, mostly kind of Western Texas, that um, had above normal soil moisture. And then we did see it start to deplete, but it never fully got below normal. Um, So we did see a little bit of that um, potential, you know, trying to pull out the moisture from the soil um, and then possibly create more of that positive feedback in that area. Um, But specifically in Oklahoma, we didn't see too much of a change in kind of that soil moisture. Um, So, it might have been too, just because it was already dry. Sure. Especially, it was mostly on the top layer, so it could have been pulling from you know more lower levels um, that obviously I wasn't seeing kind of in my data, but um, that could potentially be happening. Um, but if the soil moisture is probably already dry, then it may not be able to extract too too much. Um, sure. Because there well, really and, isn't much for it to give. <laughs> yeah, and in December, you know, the trees are without leaves and grasses aren't really well maybe they started growing a little bit again but their the demand for water probably isn't all that strong so if you didn't really have the top layer moisture to start out with then maybe you wouldn't have noticed much of depletion because there wasn't much to take it up but if you had seen that top layer I'm, I'm guessing with those temperatures that you would have seen it drawn down somewhat with uh with that especially if you had uh, was, was it also coupled with higher wind speeds too or is it mostly just all thermal um it was pretty I would say like I don't know comparative to normal, um, but the wind speeds were, you know, they weren't five miles an hour. Like they were faster than that. So um, it definitely added a lot. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, the temperature advection was super strong kind of through that area. Um, And it was really impressive, but throughout the entire depth of the atmosphere, to be honest with you, um, we looked at kind of skew T's at different kind of locations within um, our study region in the Southern Great Plains and the skew T looks like a summer profile um, throughout much of the, you know, from almost 500 to the surface. Um, 
in what sense? Extremely warm. Um, Temperatures, I think, at 500 were only 10 degrees Celsius. So, yeah, that's not really what you would expect during the winter season. (laughs) No, no. And I guess, too, was there also, with that infection, was there a decent amount of um, low-level moisture in the the atmosphere, too, or is it pretty dry? It didn't seem all... um, Honestly, there through the profile, that didn't seem like there was too much moisture. To be honest with you, um, I wouldn't say it was extremely dry, but um, it definitely wasn't, you know, probably above normal um, to really add to that. Yeah, so you weren't having dew points like consistently in the in the sixties or anything, Mm-mm. which which would have probably helped suppress the evaporative loss a little bit. Right. Um, so, I mean, in, in terms of um, you know, this type of research. And again, I think what you're doing seems relatively unique since most people are, haven't, aren't looking at these uh, type of thermal shocks. And it does strike me that it's probably very important for winter wheat crop down that part of the country, especially if these trends are increasing. Um, but I think one of the most important aspects also is just communicating this to agricultural researchers and to the general public. So what 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 methods are you taking to try and get this message across that this is a, you know, kind of a, an emerging issue and a growing problem. Yeah. And a little bit of what spawned the idea in a sense was um, we, ha- we were talking to a couple of USDA folks and they kind of showed interest in, they've been seeing kind of an increase in pests during the winter season, which are then further killing the crops. And obviously when you're not getting, you know, more of the freezing temperatures are below, you know, temperatures where they will be able to survive they stay out longer and um obviously you know pests to farmers is not a great thing so when you're having more um an increase in these warm spells during kind of a winter season um the bugs are able to kind of stay out longer and um that really kind of kick-started looking into this so um a bit of how i'm communicating it is um being able to synthesize a lot of the data that I collect and a lot of the data that I use in a way that's more of a schematic in a sense to really show all the interacting parts that kind of are at play and are present during these warm spell events Um, and kind of showing how each component may contribute or may not be present during certain situations um, kind of helps them understand specifically what they may need to look for, what questions to ask when they're looking at forecasts, for example. Sure. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if this actually, you know, if there are mitigative actions that could be taken to say, make sure we have to do more pest eradications, which unfortunately would probably mean more pesticides, potentially more herbicides, things like that. If you aren't getting that routine, uh, you know, cold period during the winter that you need for um, for the winter wheat. Uh, so what, what do you ultimately hope come, comes out of this research in terms of uh, its impact to um, Oklahoma agriculture or just uh, in general? Yeah, I think honestly, what I really want to gain out of it is just being able to um, communicate and educate a lot of the agricultural sectors on, you know, what trends are we seeing what specific almost warning signs can be looked out for in order to forecast kind of these winter warm spells better. And um, 
a lot of it could also be that to incorporate a bit of some of, you know, their research and, you know, models that they specifically may use um, to determine, you know, their yields at the end of their growing season. And um, again, I, I mean, winter wheat is such a huge um, kind of cropped grown here in Oklahoma that being able to provide and educate a bit on what may be causing impact or yield loss um, really can help their success um, and limit a lot of the, you know, amount that they may lose um, during the growing season. Sure. Yeah. And if these start becoming a little more common, then maybe one action is you just start planting the weed a little bit later. So it's not trying to hit a fertilization period in late November. Maybe it's trying to hit it more like around Christmas time. And, you know, this, that, that period might be shorter. And maybe that's just a, a wheat breeding issue. That's that's above my pay grade. And um, I'm guessing that's probably above yours too. But do you, you actually, do you get yeah. to work with um, people at Oklahoma State or Kansas State or um, Texas Tech or any anybody that really kind of does more uh, agronomic research in wheat? Um yeah, so I haven't specifically worked with anybody. Um, I've had a couple of discussions with some people here um, at the state level, but um, I haven't fully dived into kind of presenting a lot of my findings quite yet um, and refining them a little bit more before I do that. But um, there's definitely avenues that I can take and connections that I do have to have those conversations. Um, I think with a lot of kind of meteorological research, especially when it's more applied to, you know, multiple different sectors, you need kind of that open conversation to be able to learn specifically what they may need and what they may need to understand from their point of view um, in order for, you know, I feel like for us atmospheric scientists to really um, be successful and provide the proper information as well. No, absolutely. And I, what you're just saying is, very, very important. The context is critical. Giving people information is useful, but it has, has to be in a form, in a, in a method that's actually usable to them. Um, and I think that's maybe one issue that people have generally had with like seasonal forecasts is I think the way that they've generally been delivered isn't always the most effective way of doing it. Um, but yeah, it, it was actually just so a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with uh uh, extension specialist that works uh, some with winter wheat in parts of southern Nebraska. I did ask him this question about winter winter thermal shocks, as I know it had been an issue in the southern plains. And he was saying that we haven't had too much of that issue up here yet. But he said it's he wouldn't surprise him if we didn't start having more of that. Uh, but he indicated it was actually really more of like, is it warm enough to drive the soil temperature to a level that the crop starts like waking up? Um, and we haven't typically had that but from what he was saying is that the you know bigger issues if you do have that and then you get a really really big cold snap like right after that that's actually what really is the biggest problem uh especially if you don't have the moisture um mm -hmm. so this is kind of why i was asking about the moisture aspect earlier says i think if it if there is more moisture it seems like it is a little bit more resilient to bouncing back if it doesn't then it's just like one stress too many right and that makes sense as to um kind of what happens a little bit more so in the springtime is um, during the quote unquote traditional growing season, you have more of these, you know, warm spells and warmer periods, you know, a little bit prior to when a lot of the agriculture and crops start harvesting and growing, really, you get kind of an early onset of that, um, which has some advantages depending upon what happens afterwards. But 
may have some extreme disadvantages depending upon what happens afterwards. Um, and so it makes total sense that if you're having these warm spells, which are, you know, almost giving a false narrative to the crops to be able to grow and like wake them up, oh, it's time for me to start growing. And then you get more of these cold um, temperatures shortly after, um, it really can hinder a lot of what could be harvested. Sure. And I, I had to go back and listen to the podcast we did, but I, I thought I remember Nathan saying that they are working on more varieties that are less susceptible to waking up, so to speak, during these warmer periods. Like they would take like a much more extended period. Uh, but then again, like what you're describing, December 2021 is probably beyond a period that they're able to do genetically right now. Um, right. So. And I doubt that you can hold off planting for that long. Oh, absolutely. Um, right. That's too long of a period. I mean, you're talking almost close to two months before being able to actually plant when you normally would. So, yeah. Um, like I said, I, a lot of this research, I'd like to be able to just, you know, communicate and educate a little bit what's going on and the increased frequency of these extreme events um, to help them, you know, possibly determine potential mitigation strategies, um, whether that be that they just need know more of a warning to these events or um kind of adapting specifically when they plant or how they plant some of these crops um so excellent yeah i think it'd be you happen to have an idea what the uh, impact of yields was in 2022 i don't have a number specifically off the top of my head um it wasn't really really significant just because i think it happened so early on um during kind of that season of winter wheat but it was enough that it was noted as you know not a you know extremely high yield um sure. kind of year for them sure yeah maybe it'd been worse if it had happened in say february and then you'd had a cold march uh or if it had been i mean i think the worst impact certainly is you know, it's severe drought. And right. you, well, actually, it was interesting. Nathan mentioned that uh, the impact from dryness in the fall actually is more significant, at least up here, uh, than in the spring. So if it doesn't start out well before it goes into its, you know, long fertilization period, uh, then your yield potential for that next year is really actually fairly low. I mean, lower than what you normally would have. But if you have a good start, my understanding is as long as you get a couple of good rains in April and May, then it's probably going to be a reasonably good crop. Uh, so that startup, that's that, that period of after, right after planting actually is a little more important than I um, anticipate, which is one reason I do these podcasts is I get to learn a lot when I do these. <laughs> and I've learned yeah, quite I mean, a bit from makes, what you've been talking about. Yeah. It makes sense as to if you don't have kind of that good start, because like we've discussed just a little bit ago, if you don't have kind of that true replenish period in that soil moisture and then you plant, mm -hmm you're not really planning into great soil conditions. So it's going to make it that much more difficult for kind of the crops to really grow um, and forage in, you know, drier than normal soil conditions. Sure. Well, well, anything else that you're working on that you find really interesting or you're really looking forward to the next six to nine months? What, you know, uh, what you, <laughs> other than finishing up a dissertation? <laughs> yeah, just kind of, writing papers and hoping to find more research and more ideas that spawn off of all that research. Um, 
But other than that, really just kind of figure out what I want to do after grad school and what direction I'd like to take my research in in the future. Um, and just honestly continue more of these interdisciplinary conversations because I think they're really, really crucial, specifically looking at these extreme events, especially on the subseasonal, the seasonal time scale. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that about wraps up our time today, but thank you very much for joining Taylor and you have a good rest of your day. Thank you for having me. Thank you.